Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Yesterday was the funeral of Stephen Hawking, world-renowned physicist. He died in the middle of March, and after his death, there were wall-to-wall eulogies. There was a quote of his that uh, was given, which stuck in my mind. And these were the words that were attributed to him. Science cannot prove that God does not exist. Oh, good. Science cannot prove that God does not exist. But then he goes on to say, it has rendered him irrelevant. Science cannot prove that God does not exist, but it has rendered him irrelevant. Now, Christians may disagree with the last part of that statement about irrelevance, but the first part is is a little bit of a relief. It's a little bit of a relief. Science can't prove that there is no God. Ah, because we've long ago assumed that we also can't prove that there is. And in the absence of proof one way or the other, there's a little bit of space for us to feel at our ease. So we don't agree that God is irrelevant. We do agree that he can't be proven to exist or disproven to exist. You just have to take it on faith. You just have to take it on faith. As strange as it seems, it wasn't so long ago, in fact, the middle of the 20th century, when a famous uh, atheist philosopher, Anthony Flew, wrote a paper, an academic paper, arguing in favor of something he called the presumption of atheism. In court, there's a presumption of innocence. When you're accused, you're meant to be treated as if you are innocent. He was arguing that in society, we ought to have a similar presumption in favor of atheism, in favor of the belief that there is no God. In the absence of evidence to the contrary, that just makes sense. In the 1950s, it was necessary to write papers to argue that point. And today, we all take it for granted. Believer and unbeliever alike, we all assume that the burden of proof rests on those who believe that there is a God. That if you were just looking at the evidence, if you were just looking at the objective facts, then obviously you'd be an atheist. But you need that little something extra to cross the the gap. Again, you just have to have faith. You just got to have a little faith. So we imagine that's the dynamic In, in the realm of proof. In the realm of evidence, atheism. But if you can cross over into the realm of faith, then you can believe. But this is only partly right. The questions being asked are not new questions. Jesus, in his own day, was asked for proof. People demanded proof of Jesus. Jesus said, you must have faith. But Jesus didn't say you must have faith because there is no proof. Jesus said there's proof, and even so you must have faith. Because there's a greater obstacle to belief than lack of evidence. There is something greater standing in the way than a mere absence of proof. And this something 
standing in the way. There's something more. It's something, when Jesus describes it, that sounds a little bit like what we would call bias. We talk a lot about bias in media, the idea that we all have these preconceived notions that, that lend us to twist the facts into the pattern of what we already believe. Jesus talks about an obstacle that's kind of like that. And yet, when he talks about it, it sounds like something much deeper, much deeper than mere bias. Because the obstacle he's talking about, it doesn't function the way bias does. Bias is one of those things we acknowledge so that we can overcome. I know that I'm biased, but if I can just step back, if I can just gain some perspective, listen to other voices, I can, I can overcome my bias. But the obstacle that Jesus is talking about is one that you cannot overcome. There is no perspective by which you can overcome the barrier that stands before you. So in Scripture, you don't see Jesus going around to people saying, hey, look, there's no proof. You just have to take it on faith. Instead, you see Jesus being asked for proof, answering, here's proof, and then going on top of that saying, here's proof that should be so convincing that if you don't believe it, there's just no excuse. You see Jesus talking this way in the passage that we're looking at now. This is in Matthew chapter 12. We read these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So you see in the passage, people are coming to Jesus, and they're demanding signs. They're demanding proof. They're saying, if you are the Messiah, then prove it. Show us a sign. Now, the irony in this particular passage is it's not as if Jesus hasn't already shown some signs. Jesus has already done some miraculous things. And so although the scribes and Pharisees come to him, and it seems like this is a polite question, they come up to him and say, teacher, uh, didaskala is the word in Greek, which is where we get our word didactic, like someone who teaches, who leads, who guides. They call him teacher. But the question is, how teachable are they? They're asking him to show yet another sign. He's shown many before this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Of course, he follows up to say that the gospel to them is a stumbling block. In the case of those who seek signs, it's, it's foolishness. In the case of those who seek wisdom. What they're seeking from Jesus is not just to do a miracle. 
Like when we see this, what we imagine is, well, they want Jesus to do something similar to what we would think of as like a, a, a magic trick. They want him to do something amazing. We heard you could turn water into wine. We'd like to see something like that. We'd like to see something good that, that shows us how powerful you are. But there's an aspect to miracles in Scripture that we often uh, don't appreciate, which is that the signs accompany words. The reason for the miracles is to show the authority of the words. Right? So Jesus performs miracles not just to show all the cool stuff he can do. He performs those miracles in order to give legitimacy to the words that he speaks, to the teaching. And so they understand this. So what they're asking him to do isn't just to do some amazing feat. They're asking him to give a sign that would legitimate his claims. So they really are asking for proof, not just some wonder, but some proof, some reason to believe. As I said, Paul, when he acknowledges this seeking after signs, this desire for signs, this seeking after wisdom in the case of the Gentiles, and he says that, that those who seek signs find only stumbling blocks in the gospel, and those who seek wisdom find their only foolishness, only folly, acknowledges that there's a reason for this. But the reason is not that there are no signs. The reason is not that there is no proof or no wisdom. It's that those who seek are unable to see what is actually there. When Jesus answers these men, he answers them with what's kind of a stock answer for Jesus. If you look through the accounts of the Gospels, you'll see that, that people sometimes come to Jesus this way, uh, challenging him to prove his claims. And usually the way that he does this is something like what he does here. He says, hey, this evil, this adulterous generation, they're seeking signs and no sign will be given. That's the usual response. Jesus actually goes a little farther here. It's interesting that he uses this phrase. He refers to them as an evil and adulterous generation. Uh, it's not a really missional way to talk to people when they come to you asking about your faith. But uh, Jesus is pointing to something here. Uh, in that term, adulterous, he's pointing to an unfaithfulness. So he's speaking to scribes and Pharisees, in other words, learned people, people who should know these things. And because of their unfaithfulness to the word they supposedly have mastered and supposedly proclaimed, they're unable to see what is staring them in the face. And so he speaks to them harshly in this way. But the harshness has to do with the knowledge that they supposedly possess. It's not that Jesus is just a mean guy, that Jesus sees a generation that, that has all these advantages and has turned aside from them, has abandoned them. It's because of their unfaithfulness that they've come to him seeking signs. It's because they don't believe what has already been given to them. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that one? These two men who live very different lives on this earth. And when they die, they find themselves in the presence of Abraham. There's a gulf separating the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, looking across the gulf, has this, uh, this selfless urge. It's a little late, but suddenly he finds himself thinking about others. And he asks, would it be possible to send Lazarus back and tell everyone the truth? Could he go back from the dead 
and proclaim to all of my loved ones what's really real so that they don't end up in this place where I find myself. Abraham answers with words that are kind of chilling. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There is an impenetrability to their belief, their unbelief. Even if someone were to be raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe the testimony that he brought back. Prophetic words. They also point to a fact that Jesus himself points to on the Emmaus Road, that all the prophecy, all of the testimony in the Old Testament attested to him, that it was all there to be seen out in the open if people had had eyes to see. It is because of faithlessness that this generation is blinded to what is all around them, and they will have no sign, he says. But he goes a little farther. Not always, though. If you were to look at Mark chapter 8, you would see Jesus stops there. He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In Luke 11, he goes a little farther. He says, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah, which is what we have in our text. But when he describes the sign of Jonah in Luke chapter 11, he doesn't really go into the detail of what that means. It's only here in Matthew's gospel that we find out what the nature of the sign actually is. And that's why I say this this answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 12 is more than the usual answer. He says there's no sign but the sign of Jonah, and then he goes farther and explains what it is he's talking about. He says just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is he talking about? The story of Jonah, where the sign of Jonah comes from, Jonah, of course, is thrown off the boat, is swallowed by a great fish, a whale, and remains in the belly of that whale until he is spat up onto the ground uh, three days later. Now Jesus is talking about an event that is still to come, about a sign that has not yet been given when he's speaking here. He's talking about his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection is the sign. It is the proof. Christ's death and resurrection is the proof that his critics are looking for. The same idea Jesus expresses using a different analogy in John chapter 2. If you remember when he's standing in front of the temple, he says to the people there that this temple would be destroyed and in three days built back up again. And they're thinking, you know nothing about architecture, Jesus. That's not how it works. But then John says he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the temple of his flesh, his body. So again, he's giving signs. He's giving hints at the proof that is to come, the proof that is the resurrection. As we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have so many different reasons to be grateful. But when we look at that resurrection, one way we need to look at it is to look at it as proof as an event that has sign value that testifies to the truth of the claims made by the one who rose from the dead. They said, if you are the Messiah, then prove it. 
Well, the proof is in Christ's death and resurrection. The proof is in the fact that though he was killed, yet he lives. And in the face of such proof, Jesus says there is no excuse. He gives examples. He says, on the day of judgment, the Ninevites will rise up against this generation and condemn it because they had the testimony of Jonah and they repented. And something much greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will raise up at the judgment and condemn this generation because she went to the ends of the earth seeking out the wisdom of Solomon, and there is a greater wisdom than Solomon's that is here before you. It's interesting to see that that the Ninevites, the queen of the south, these are all Gentiles. And he's speaking to these scholars of the Jewish law. There's, there's There's a sharp edge to this rhetoric here. He's saying that on the day of judgment before the God that you claim to be your God, These Gentiles who you think are outside the covenant will rise up and judge you because they had less than you have and they turned and repented. They had less wisdom than you've been given and yet they believed. In other words, there's no excuse. You had so much. You had so much wisdom, so much knowledge, so much reason So much cause, but if you do not listen to it, if you do not see it, you can make no excuse. In Matthew 11, Jesus speaks in a similar way about Sodom. When the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, it holds these places out as like the paragon of sin. Like you don't want to be compared. You don't want to go around. Sioux Falls is like another Sodom. That wouldn't be complimentary, right? That's not something we aspire to. And yet... Jesus says in Matthew 11, if Sodom had had what you had, they would have repented. If they had seen what you have seen, they would have repented. Like those people that you look at as the worst possible human beings, the people that you look at and say they deserved the judgment that they received, Jesus says if they had had what you have, they would have turned. They would have believed. So what excuse can we make for rejecting him? You see, in the way that Jesus speaks to these scribes and Pharisees, you see in in the way that he speaks of the Ninevites, the Queen of the South, the, the Sodomites, you see that for Jesus, unbelief is different than what we think it is. He sees it differently than we do, in other words. For Jesus... Unbelief, like belief, is a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition. There is an intellectual component, obviously, but it's more than that, more all-encompassing than that. It is spiritual in nature. It is more than just a lack of proof because it somehow ignores the greatest proof that has ever existed, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I said before that there was something about unbelief, something about this barrier that's like what we would call bias. It's like bias, but deeper. As you struggle to understand what that would be like, there's a passage, I think, that illuminates it well. Uh, You'll forgive me as 
as a novelist, citing other novelists, but I'm going to do it anyway. One of my favorite novels, Walker Percy's book, The Moviegoer, has what I think is one of the most perceptive descriptions of the nature of unbelief. His protagonist is um, a confirmed atheist, and throughout the book, kind of thinks through and talks about the nature of his belief. This is a description of his belief that I'd like you to listen to. He says, My unbelief was invincible from the beginning. I could never make head or tail of God. The proofs of God's existence may have been true for all I know, but it didn't make the slightest difference. If God himself had appeared to me, it would have changed nothing. In fact, I have only to hear the word God and a curtain comes down in my head. What's he describing there? What's the phenomena? If we were looking for the analogy, what what to compare this state to, what he's describing is blindness. A curtain comes down when I hear the very word. Refusing, more than that, like unable to see what's being claimed. The proofs could be true for all I know. It doesn't make any difference at all. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were like this. They were asking for proof, for evidence. And yet they suffered from blindness. Scripture says you search the world for proof of God and you come up empty, not because there is no proof, but because you cannot see it. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says, and yet all you hear is Crickets chirping. The scribes and Pharisees, they weren't just blind, they loved their blindness. They were committed to it and confirmed to it, and Jesus ultimately left them in their blindness. But the good news is that that's not always the way it went. When the blind came to Jesus seeking healing, Jesus gave them sight. Jesus healed their sight. And that was a sign too. In doing that act, Jesus was showing not just that he was really committed to 2020 vision, he was giving a sign of who he was and what he was here to do. That the brokenness that came from sin, he was here to reverse. That where sin had turned the world upside down, Jesus would put it right again. That Jesus was here in a sinful world where sin had blinded people to reality, and Jesus was here to open our eyes. Which means that when people demand proof, there is actually proof that can be given. Jesus says there is proof. Jesus says the resurrection is proof. When people ask for proof, we offer proof. We also offer prayer. We can point to the fact of the resurrection and pray that Jesus will give sight to the blind, that he will give to all what he has given to us. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He was suffering, he was in chains, and yet the word was not bound. He yearned to bring the freedom that he lived, despite his chains, to a world in bondage around him, that they also might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. As we look at the resurrection, the resurrection points us to our future hope. As Lyle prayed earlier, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits from the dead. We look forward to our own resurrection. As Christ rose again, we too will rise. The resurrection gives comfort. Comfort that body and soul will be reunited. That after death does not come oblivion. That all that happens here isn't meaningless. The resurrection insists on the goodness of creation. The fact that Christ didn't just take on flesh and dwell among us for a season, and then after the resurrection happily go back to being disembodied, but instead remained fully human, continues to be fully in the flesh, tells us that there's something good about being what we are. Our humanity is affirmed. Having a body is affirmed. The physical world and the goodness of it, the goodness of its pleasures, are affirmed in the resurrection. The goodness of life itself is affirmed in the resurrection. The resurrection offers all of those things. And yes, the resurrection is also a sign. It is a sign that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, that he was truly the one he claimed to be, the Son of God. The resurrection is a sign that testifies to the fact that in the age-old battle, Between death and life, life has won in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.